This is the Hop Podcast. Like, uh, were you the first person to crash in Crash Corner? Probably. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on who went down first. I think we all crashed at that time. Okay, welcome to the Hop Podcast. This is episode number five, and I'm interviewing Dan Pape today. And if you don't know who Dan is, you've probably been inspired by him, or what you do today probably has its origins or somewhere along the lines from Dan. So, And these are some of Dan's achievements, or I suppose the, the journey that Dan's been on. Onshore boards, which was a revolutionary, a different type of speedboard that Dan skated in the early days of Canadian downhill. Team Calabo, which had um, founding riders, or their team included Kevin Reimer, Brianne Davies, Max Irwin, Nathan Lang, Mike Goldrick, and many more. He created the world's first downhill movie called Fellowship of the Bearing. He started a company, or he inspired to uh, create the first downhill helmet, via Lid Technologies, Calabo Riding School. He was a co-founder with Tim Cutting of Skate Slate magazine. He started Skate Slate Japan, and the list goes on and on. And one of the recent ones was he was the he came up with the idea of that recent Japan downhill Red Bull race. So the guy is prolific, and we're going to interview him today. Dan, how are you going? Doing good, doing really well. Thanks. Yeah. Those, are some, those are some kind words. I'll throughout the interview, I'll um, I'll uh, correct some of those, but uh, appreciate. <laughs> well, appreciate I think you're too mod- I think you're too modest because a lot of people take credit for a lot of stuff that they don't do. And you know what? I just think you just got to put it out there. You know, you might not think that you did the world's first downhill movie, but to the whole community, you did whether someone did something a few days or a month beforehand is neither here nor there. But, I mean, you know, stuff like that, you get the award, I reckon. Plus, this is my <laughs> podcast. It is what I say it is. <laughs> so you're, I, I've caught you in Japan. It's, um, you're living in Japan now? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, 10, it's about 10 to 1. It's uh, Tuesday morning. Kids are... Kids are finally back in school after a long, very fun holiday, and uh, and so I guess it's sort of the start of the new year, and just kind of getting back into the flow of things, and so uh, t- timing for this uh, for this podcast interview couldn't be any more perfect, actually. Yeah, awesome. Um, people, I mean, people might have been following either of our uh, Instagrams or whatever, but Dan and I caught up. Uh, last year, I went to Japan and um, we caught up one afternoon. I've sort of known Dan for a long time. I've known him since about what two thousand and nine or something. I think around the Calabo yeah. days. Yeah, I guess around two thousand and nine is when is when yeah, my we'll just keep my, touching my net. Yeah, I think that's probably when the, my network expanded the most because uh, because of the fellowship. Yeah, I just remember you know the. Jacko doing his filming, you're doing your filming. We're sort of like on opposite sides of the world, but we weren't at the same level as that you were doing. But we both had the same idea. We just wanted to capture stuff. I mean, we both love the sport so much that oh, we're just trying that to was, capture anything. Yeah, Jacko's Jacko's video, the um, 
or is it specialized? Is it yeah. Specialized? Yeah, special. That was that stuff. That stuff was just next level because I was <clears throat> at the time there was no GoPro cameras and the the POV camera that I used was called the VO Sport and um, you know so whenever you have whenever you wanted to film skaters at 90 kilometers an hour you'd have to I had this little backpack rigged up with a with the you know the um, the old school camera wired up up through my back and onto the top of my helmet and if I ever wanted to catch those those fast riders this is this is the, the things that I had to go through and and kudos to them because they they would have to be patient for me at the top of the hill while I set it all up and you know they just wanted to skate and so and then you know Jacko came out with that video and he mounted at the time I didn't know how he did it but he I believe he mounted the the camera to the back of the board and you know for me it was always about getting getting those shots that nobody else could get it wasn't really about duplicating what had already been done with better riders it was about you know getting some kind of shot that's that's really really unique so that people watch it and they go wow how how did they get that shot and to me Jacko was always uh, especially as in, as in his early videos was was one of those guys where you watch the video and you're like how did you get that shot how did you do that yeah so his dad is a uh, is a grip so I mean, he basically grew up in a household that was always finding ways to mount a, um, you know, a device to be used in the movies. You know what I mean? So, I mean, he had that early experience. He was, he's, what I liked about Jacko and his filming and his editing is he gets inspired by a lot of stuff, but he must do the same thing as you do, which is, how did they do that? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's those <laughs> How are the can I use I like that? The... I mean, it's getting it's it's getting a little bit played out now because you know I can't really think of stuff that hasn't been done. But you know, when uh, in around the mid two thousands, around two thousand five, two thousand six, around you know before HD cameras and stuff, um, you know, I was all about just trying to get these, not necessarily get the crispest or the you know the 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 highest definition or the best shot with the with the most expensive camera. It was my first camera was only a four hundred dollar camera, and and uh, and you know we would just try to get these these shots that were really difficult to get. I think that was part of the excitement was was filming sort of the evolution of downhill in Vancouver, but also the the filming is what kept me going fast. Do you think that's where is that the epicenter? Is that where it all started for like Canadian no. downhill? Would you say it was Vancouver or? Well, I, you know, that's, that's up for debate. I think there was a lot, there was a really big scene happening in Montreal. Oh, okay. Um, with Quebec and so forth. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, there, I think on the West coast, it was coast longboarding and land yachts and later rain, rain joined the party. Um, and then, but I think more on the East coast, I think it was, there was, there's definitely a group of uh, of influencers with Quebec and Ian Commission and and all you know all the people that sort of uh, worked or, or or got stoked by his influence um, and so his initiative over there. So you know, I, I, but I think but I think what what made it so big in Vancouver was Mike Benda. Um, I think it was 
the Mike Benda sessions that really blew it up. And and uh, if you don't know who Mike Benda is, he was a um, a sponsored rider by Rain Longboards, and he used to do these uh, these sessions every Saturday, and he <clears throat> he'd call them. Just Saturday sessions, pretty simple, right? And every Saturday at 10 o'clock, they would meet at this church, the bottom of uh, the hills in West Vancouver. Rain or shine, he would be there every Saturday. And uh, so, you know, I think that was that was the big, the big um, sort of catalyst was people could go there and know that there would be other skilled riders there who could teach them how to ride, and and it just sort of grew and grew. I mean, I remember it was half a dozen people, and then it grew to a dozen people and then eventually they had to split up into two groups because it was getting so big <laughs> and you know and, and that was sort of nobody told him to do it he wasn't getting paid to do it he just he just loved teaching people to ride and and uh wanted people to do it in a safe way so he would so they would go to a corner and and have radios and and do it proper and were you involved in those sessions <clears throat> yeah yeah definitely that was um that was what sort of, I learned how to skate. What sort of uh, board were you on? What what year are we talking, approximately? Yeah, so this is around uh, around two thousand and seven or so. Two thousand seven. Two thousand. Yeah, around two thousand. Yeah. So my my memory's foggy from those days, but I would say like two thousand six, two thousand seven ish. I mean, from two thousand and two all the way up to two thousand and eight is when it really grew. Was when it really grew in size, and you know. Um, uh, Land Yachts was doing a lot of, you know, they were doing all the the major bombing sessions down Seymour and Cyprus, and you know they, if it wasn't for those guys going really fast with the likes of Michel Urban and Tom Edstrand traveling the world and winning races everywhere on his on his Evo, you know those are those are the things that inspired a lot of a lot of skaters to go fast. And what sort of board were you on at this stage? Like, what did you learn on? Were you borrowing boards or? So, yeah. So I started on uh, on an onshore board, um, okay. and that and that was kind of how I was known. And I guess around two thousand and two, two thousand and three, people called me OSB Dan, and um, <laughs> that that stood for onshore boards Dan. And and uh, yeah, so I was down in um, English Bay, which is sort of the beach and beach area of. Uh, downtown Vancouver and Bryson Lyons came up to me with um, probably five or six other punk rock skateboarders and uh, they all had these Evos and I, I actually I don't think they were Evos at that time I think they were um, what was what was the Land Yachts board the um, the first drop down board it? what was it called it was the by, made by no the one that was um, or the, was, uh, there was one called just the DH was it the DH Land yeah, the downhill. DH. It was, the uh, DH. Jody, Sch- jo- Jody, Sch- uh, Jody Schnitzel's invention there. The um, yeah, the the yeah, the DH. Yeah, so so Bryson had these these Randall Randall trucks and massive wheels. I think the wheels were like you know, big Abec Elevens or something. Yeah, big Abec Eleven, like you know, the flywheel. <laughs> yeah, that's right, the classic flywheel. And some of them had like pin pintail, like skull skates boards, and but um, yeah, I was just in uh, in English Bay with my friend uh, Jason Bamford, who was one of the designers on the 
that designed the onshore board and um and we were just doing some filming to make a little promo video this is before helmets before any kind of extreme or anything like that mm. and bryce bryson came up to us and said hey why don't you race that thing down a hill <laughs> That's, and, you even uh, got striker down fat that even sounded a bit like striker <laughs> yeah like what well hey man why don't you race that down a hill i was like race why like why the hell would i race my skateboard that's that's ridiculous and that was <clears throat> that was kind of kind of what he said to me at that time and uh and jason jason and i were were curious what he meant by racing a skateboard down a hill so we talked to him a little bit more and you know his his enthusiastic nature yeah somehow he somehow he convinced us to go to danger bay one and that was that was sort of where it all began was Bryson's invitation to Danger Bay One, his first downhill skateboard race. So and, I'm I'm sure everyone at the moment is probably busy googling onshore boards. Well, they should be because it's a unique design. So let's just let's just get <clears> there <throat> before we go any further. Let's just get this design. So the onshore board had the front trucks or the front wheels were like inline, like an inline type of wheel. Is that right? Yeah, so Brad Bradfield, he was a South African surfer who moved to Vancouver. Uh, I think he was there for close to 20 years, and over over those years, he he had multiple different prototypes that he tested out. But his his dream was to create a, um, I guess, a skateboard that rode like a surfboard. And I don't mean four, two wheels in the front, two wheels in the back. What I mean is like it, it steered from the rear like a surfboard does. So, right. I mean, I believe I'm not, I'm not a surfer myself. I, I plan to take it up sometime before I die. But um, I believe a surfboard um, steers from the rear, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so he so he went through, I don't know, 15 designs. And at the end of at the end of all these prototypes, he met, or after about 15 different prototypes, he met Jason Bamford, who was a graphic designer, or sorry, um, industrial and graphic designer that went to the Emily Carr Institute, which is a renowned institute uh, on Granville Island in Vancouver. <clears throat> and um, and so they teamed up and they made these beautiful looking surfboard um, shaped longboards that had um, four inline wheels in the front, so like an inline skate yeah. in the middle of the, in the middle of the board, and then um, in the front, and then the rear was um, was a standard skateboard truck modified with a longer um, shaft. Uh, I don't want to say shaft, more like a longer, uh, like it was equipped to have dual inline wheels on the rear. Because for years they for years they tried skateboard wheels and they just kind of slid out or they didn't really quite grip the pavement to this, you know the way they wanted to with this particular design so so you got a picture four dually wheels in the rear dually inline wheels in the rear and and four inline wheels down the middle of the front of the board near near the nose and so essentially you're standing over so your front foot is standing over this inline wheel and your back your back foot is sort of towards the, the back of the the, the foot uh, the foot the, the basing where you put your feet I guess and um, so there's lateral flex in the board so when you're carving it the board like we have pictures of the board 
you know, the inline wheel is totally tweaked right towards the pavement, and then the the, the tail of the board is like going the complete opposite way. So, and they were and they were all handcrafted in the early years. They were all made in in a workshop in uh, in East Vancouver. It, what was it like to skate? Like, if you just pushed it on the, on the flat, what was it like? So it was it was hard to it was hard to get um it was wasn't really that good for pushing it was more of like a kind of board you carry to the top of the hill and just kind of go down the hill. Oh okay. Right. Um, but but because so you I was so speed. you need a little bit little bit of speed. Um, but you know because I was so so uh, I guess stoked to be involved in something that had never that nobody had ever seen before. I I practiced on it all the time and. And, and just loved it right from the beginning. Like, you know, I, I moved to Vancouver from Ontario when I was um, 18 or 17, 18. And um, when I moved there, I loved snowboarding. Like I spent four days a week snowboarding as a kid and, and I just, I couldn't really afford it to go to the mountains in, in Vancouver because I lived about an hour away from the mountains. And when I discovered the onshore board it was the closest thing i felt to carving on us on a on a surfboard so i just right away i just fell in love with it and so i was out sort of prototyping and testing it with jason and, and then striker um, and then striker came up to us and said hey why don't you why don't you race those and i mean strike striker is basically he's organizing his first race so he's out recruiting anyone he can find on the board basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you went so you went to Danger Bay number one. So yeah, Jason Bamford, Brad Bradfield, who is the the original inventor of the board, and myself, who I guess was played sort of a a demo rider role in the company, um, went to Danger Bay one and were there and many skaters? Was a, there was, I think, there was twelve of us. There was twelve <laughs> racers, maybe. And that was the first time I met Tom Edstrand, Mike Periton, Ryan Theobald. Um, <clears throat> who else was there? Obviously, Stryker was there. Schnitzel, Jody Schnitzel. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, the list is so small. I got to really dig deep just to remember who was there. But you know, um, uh, yeah, those Stu, Stu, uh, his nickname Stu Manchu. Uh, yeah. Uh, Stu. And um, Stu was worked for Land Yachts for years and years and years, and those were sort of the original crew. And I was fr- I've been friends with those guys ever since. I was in two thousand and one or two thousand and two. I, mean, I imagine everyone's on a a DH or a Land Yachts board, except for you. What was that right, like? Right. So we're all standing at the top of the hill, and everybody's like, "Hey, you're not going to race that thing, are you?" <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go. Down Did you have a helmet? Like, did you have a helmet? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I had, I, but I just had like a like a half shell, you know, like a, a skull cap or whatever. Okay, like so no leathers. Standard. Did you have pads on or anything? Or um, the rules of the race were you just have to have you just have to have jeans on. And, <laughs> Sounds like a striker. And race. a helmet and a helmet and and um, I think we it was the first time I wore slide gloves and um, I think I had some. You know the the the, the classic um, you know work gloves with the uh, cutting board like like melted to the palm. That was you know kind of it. So you're standing at the top of the hill, 
So these are just practice runs and that's it. Off you go. Yeah, yeah. So off we go down the hill and um, I'm just trying to stay on the board because it's like, this, you know. <laughs> are we, you carving thought, it at this stage or are you bombing it? I, w- I was bombing it, but I, I, was, I was just happy to make it down the hill. You know, I wasn't like... Uh, Were bom- you the first bom- person to crash in Crash Corner? Probably. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on who went down first. I think we all crashed at that time. But you know these guys; these guys all had lowered. You know, not all of them, but most of them had like lowered drop boards, and so uh, those boards were 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 designed to go down the hill. But you know, the, honestly, the only reason we ever entered the race was for exposure, so that other people could be exposed to the to the design of the onshore board. It wasn't, you know, there was nothing, there was no in, no inclination in my mind to ever try to win the race. I just wanted to, you know, just hang out with skaters and. You know, my, my roots was, my roots was skateboarding. So, so, you know, people thought it was quirky or kooky or whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, I just, I was just hanging out with, with, with the crew, you know, just other skateboarders. I didn't really see it that way at all. Just hanging out. I mean, did you ever make it to the bottom in one piece, like without crashing or is it, was just one of these things that just, you get into a corner and you just crashed? No, no, I, I made it down the hill. I mean, but the thing is, is I would, I would just try to just make it around the corner. I wasn't trying to, like, I would, the other guys would drop in first and, mm. and then I would just kind of wait till they were, you know, I'd wait 10 seconds and then I would drop in and just try to make it down the hill. Cause you know, it was scary as hell. Just, just downhill skateboarding itself was, was scary, but riding the onshore board in Danger Bay one was probably <laughs> one of the scariest things I ever did. And the, did you ever try a normal longboard? Like at, at that first event, did you, did anyone say, oh, why don't you try my board? Well, you know, the, like, uh, Ryan, Ryan and Ryan Theobald, um, his nickname at the time was Ryan fucking Theobald. (laughs) (laughs) Given, I don't, I don't know why it was Ryan fucking Theobald, but it was one of Bryson's classic, uh, classic, uh, nicknames. And, um, But, um, you know, he, since, since Bryson had that kind of personality where everybody's invited, it doesn't matter what kind of board you're on. I mean, it was all land yachts guys at that time, but it doesn't matter what kind of board you're on. I, that was sort of, that kind of stuck with me forever. I mean, for, mm. it's still, it's still with me to this day. I never look at somebody and go, oh, you're a, oh no, you're on a, you know, you're on a busting board. Oh, that's from New York. I can't ride that. You know, like that stuff's so ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, Bustin, I think Bustin's from New York, right? Yeah, they are. Yep. <laughs> So, so, um, and so at that first, yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I stood on the boards and went down a little bit, but you know, at that time, I think, I mean, they were, the boards were definitely better equipped for going downhills, but I think they also felt like, uh, strange in a different kind of way. You know, they were, they, you know, they were definitely better for going fast, but they also, you know, didn't turn and you had to go really fast in order for them to get them to turn. Yeah, I imagine and, it would have so, been a bit like going from a really carvy board to a board that doesn't turn and you go to lean to turn, you know, expecting a turny board and you just fall off the board because the board doesn't turn. That's right. The board just wouldn't turn. So, so right away, I, I didn't like it any more than the orange for board because what I like, the whole reason I got into it in the first place was because I liked I like the carving feeling of the onshore board, mm. and I and I never I've never been on a longboard to know that it was you know 
that it was that much worse or that much different than a regular carving board. I just, I didn't care. I just, it was all I knew and it was what I was comfortable with. And so and I raced how, on that. How board. old were you then? Approximately. Uh, I was, I was around 20, uh, 20, 24 ish. 24. I think. Okay. Right. I'll have, to do, I'll have to do the math, but, um, yeah, around 20, 24, 25. Yeah. And that first Danger Bay, like, where was Stryker? Did Stryker race? or would, I mean, he wouldn't have had any commentary set up. Like, I mean, these days he just, he's he's the commentator, but oh, was yeah, he just he was, the race he, organizer or was he the competitor as well? Yeah, he he raced too. He raced too. I believe Jody Schnitzel won the first one or either, he was either Tom or Jody okay. won the first one. But since there was only 12 of us, like, it, it wasn't really... Everyone's so much about the race. Yeah, it was, you know, just, you know, it was just cool to be there. And and was it just and, you know, the I, race? I, was there anything else with, because was there any other events or was it just that first, Danger Bay was just that first race? I think, I think it was just the race. I think um, the weather wasn't on our side that day, that, that, uh, that weekend. And I think we, the camping situation didn't work out. So we kind of jumped from, camp we went went from one spot to the other and it was i think it was raining really hard and um so i don't think it was i don't i don't really recall any kind of other event there might have been a slide jam the second year or the third year mm. but you know i raced i raced on the onshore board up until danger bay four and that was what that was what i think surprised a lot of people it's like every year i they you know we'd show up at the race and they'd be like oh so hey dad when are you gonna when are you gonna Stand on a real downhill board, and it's like, <laughs> you know, but you know, you're, you're the the second and the third year, we started modifying the boards. Uh, we started redesigning the boards so that they could be raced, and right. I think there's some clip, there's some clips, and there's some clips uh, somewhere out there of me getting third in the race, and you know, being neck and neck with the other racers. But oh, it's wow. it was never as e- it was never as easy as a as as a as you know an actual board that's designed to go downhills you know we 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 lowered the board and we put bigger wheels on it and we did a bunch of different things to the board to to uh but you know like i said it, that was what was exciting about it was they were all handmade and in order to get the board ready for the race i would actually have to go down to the shop and and sand the boards and you know that's that's what was cool to me was being a part of a project that no nobody had ever been a part of before and you were the only ones on uh, on shore board. Uh, Jason tried to race Danger Bay one, and he fell, and I think he broke his finger oh. or something. Okay. Uh, Jason was the uh, was the um, the, uh, the Jason Bamford. He's um, he's actually uh, did he did a, a lot of the post he did a lot of the posters for for coast longboarding for years, um, but he um, yeah so so he came out all the way up until Danger Bay 4, um, but he never raced again. I was the only guy that, that raced. And then um, Danger Bay Danger Bay 4, there was a, hand, there was a handful of racers that, that came in from Europe um, that were really interested in the design of the onshore board, and they all had onshore boards, and they all tried to race it. Um, but the, the greatest, the greatest rider to ever, 
uh, do well on the onshore board was Ted Smalley, and his nickname was uh, Teddy Shreddy, and he was a uh, he was he was just awesome. He went on the onshore board, and he actually made it to the semifinals on the onshore board. It was pretty incredible. The semifinals of Danger Bay Four. Yeah, yeah, wow. he made it to the Danger Bay Four. Yeah, he made it to the semifinals. Now I'm going to say Danger Bay Three or Four because it's it's uh, it all blends you know, into one. Yeah, that's right. But around Danger Bay three or four, he he did he did really well. And I just recently posted a some videos on my Instagram, and uh, one of those videos is um, a video that I create a 15 minute video that I created in uh, 2006. Um, and in in that video, you'll see footage of of uh, Teddy or Shreddy as he was known. Uh, Bryson called him the Deer Hunter. Because uh, he was bombing down um, Cypress Mountain or Seymour Mountain, and he hit a deer and killed it, <laughs> which is, which is you know sad, but kind of, kind of humorous in a way, I guess. It so, is yeah, a his the deer hunter. Has Bryson ever given you a nickname? Oh, he's got a different nickname every time I meet him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I can't remember what his last nickname was for me. But uh, it's like a badge of honor in the downhill world, isn't it? If you've got a nickname from Bryson, it's like you've made truly, it. true, <laughs> truly, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, in the in the coast coast longboarding years, he, um, everybody had their their tag their tag on the there was a forum and everybody yep. that's how the that's how the sessions were done. Um, you know, people would post up and say, "Hey, I'm going," you know, before Facebook, well before any kind of um, forums that Bryson had the first forum which was the coast longboarding forum and you didn't even have to log in you could just go onto the site and you could oh, you I could remember it we used to be on it all could, the time in Australia just reading yeah it. yeah so it was it was really it was a really funny really fun community community it was, it was I had a love-hate relationship with with the coast longboarding forum because there was they had a they had a it was called Blank Man. So you could come on, you didn't have to put your name and you could just say whatever you wanted about whatever you wanted. And there was no, you, you couldn't, you wouldn't, ha- you weren't held accountable for anything you said. Yeah. So, so that, that was what I didn't like about it. Um, Cause people would come on and they would make these outlandish claims about you. And then they're like, who said that? And it, it became known as Blank Man. So Blank Man was anybody who, or everybody and anybody who wanted to say anything or whatever they want about anybody and never have any, accountability for what they said so so eventually it got kind of got out of hand and you know a lot of trolls would come to the website and and just come on and try to get people all fired up about about ridiculous things and eventually it kind of dwindled dwindled off because people just didn't want to really be a part of that negativity anymore which is really too bad because because it was the coast longboarding forum that set it off you know oh yeah it was Um, huge and it was huge so I, and I, back to back to Mike Benda and his Saturday sessions, or or Landyas would post that they're going out to the Sunshine Coast for for some downhill sessions, or or whatever. And, um, and so was Mike yeah, Bender's the, sessions before coast longboarding, or just around about the same time? Oh, so it was it was a coast longboarding session, but it was but the 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 the, the thread on the coast longboarding forum yes. was 
called Saturday sessions. And so Mike, Mike would always initiate the sessions and update, you know, what's happening. And, you know, I just kept it simple. 10 o'clock Saturday, this church, meet at the church, 10 o'clock this Saturday. And you know, yeah. that was well before there was any problems with police or, or anything like anything like that. And there, so there was a handful of places that everybody would go, that, that the, this group of these groups would go to. And so, you know, two, sometimes three cars would show up and, you know, maybe 10 or between 10 and 15 riders and everybody would just kind of shuffle into the cars and off they'd go. And that was, that was kind of, you know, kind of the thing. <laughs> Why did it stop at Danger Bay 4? What what happened at Danger Bay 4? So, I mean, you've been going to each Danger Bay, you've been on the on onshore board, you've had European guys over, they're racing on it. So what happened? Did it just, why did it stop? I can't remember the exact reason why um, I had a falling out with, um, with the onshore boards guys. There was a, about a year there, we didn't really talk that much and, I don't, I don't remember, you know, at the time it probably seemed like a big deal, but it wasn't. And so for whatever reason, we had a falling out and, um, I don't, I just, I guess I just kind of got tired of going against the grain. Like, you know, I've always been an against the grain kind of guy. And then sometimes you just sort of give in a little bit and, um, and I, and I and I wanted to be competitive, you know. For the first few years, it was about you know exposure and getting people, getting people um, introduced to the onshore board and and um, yeah. So I moved so to did, Japan. So you did Japan go to Danger Bay Five or no? You just oh yeah, I raced all the way to Danger Bay Ten. So I raced for the first oh, ten right. years. Okay, so what what board were you on from Danger Bay Five to Ten? So I went to I went to uh, I went to Japan. So I met I met my wife um, who's who's Japanese, and I went to Japan and um, and I worked on I worked on um, bringing the onshore boards to the Japanese market, and um, and that was that's a whole other story which would probably take up the uh, the entire podcast. But to make a long story short, um, I went to Japan, lived there for a year, moved back. To, back to Vancouver and lived in Vancouver for about a year. Um, uh, still rode the onshore board. Um, still had it sort of as a get around town kind of stuff. Did some filming with the guys. But um, but when I got back, um, I kind of got curious about getting on a, on a, on a sort of a regular downhill board. And, so about a year went year went by and and then I went back to Japan for a visit and when I went back to Japan uh in commission um from Quebec skateboards um said uh hey Dan you're going back to Japan I I need a big I need a huge favor I need you to connect me with an old friend the uh, his name's Toshi and Toshi uh, and him, uh, I don't know, 15 years, 15 years prior, started a company together called uh, PM Skateboards. Okay. And and so um, at, at one time, Ian planned on 
planned on living in Japan. That was his, he, like that was where he wanted to live his life. And I'll let Ian tell you why that didn't work out. But he, um, he uh, said, I need you to connect me with my long lost friend Toshi from PM Skateboards. Um, and if you can do that, um, I'll, I'll set you up with a, with a brand new longboard. And I didn't really care so much about the about the, the longboard. Of course, I'll I'll take a brand new longboard, but it was a nice little incentive. So so I went to um, I went to Japan for the visit, and through the help of my wife, we we found Toshi, and I went to see Toshi um, yeah. and on the outskirts of Tokyo, um, and um, and then reconnected him with with Ian. Um, and so Ian was very grateful for that. So when I returned from Japan, I was living in East Van at the time. There was a, a there was a brand new, um, Jim's, Jim Z flush cut with, um, with Crail, Crail cutouts and ABEC 11 wheels waiting for me. Wow. That's like a premium setup. Yeah, that was, so that was my first like downhill downhill board you know so i dappled with videos and making making creating content up until that date but it wasn't until i got the flush cut uh from quebec that i realized well i can actually film now because i can stay in control you know i can i don't have to worry about my footing and and i don't i don't have to think about you know how fast i'm going and stuff like that and you know, like I did the I did the urban assault on the onshore board. And if you're familiar with what the urban assault is, it's a race from the top of Cypress Mountain to um, Kits Kitsilano. I did that on the onshore board. So you know, the, so like it was just nice to be on a board where you didn't have to have to you know think so dying. much about <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so so you've been yeah. You're, so that you're, was you're filming the whole time. Well, I was filming. Uh, I was doing some filming, but but it wasn't until I got the flush cut um, yeah. that I that I realized, hey, I can I can go as fast as these other guys now, right? Like I can I can keep up to the fast guys. So with and, the um, with the filming at this stage, is this just maybe oh, I'm just documenting stuff, or you felt like that you could make a film or that you could create content? Yeah. So, hmm, how do I? Yeah. Well, I guess what I guess what happened was, um, I guess the best way to describe it is, um, I was doing a lot of riding with um, Kevin Reimer and Mike McGoldrick, and you know these guys at that time. <clears throat> and um, I liked I liked filming them, but um, when I got the flush cut. I was able to keep up to those guys and sometimes even pass them. Oh, right. These are the, so these are the early years of, of, of uh, for early years for me of de- like learning how to go really, really fast. You know, so basically my speeds went from 60 up to 90, right? 60 yeah. kilometers up to 90. And, um, and those were some pretty exhilarating years. And so, you know, um, going down um, Cypress, Cypress Mountain and Seymour Mountain Road <clears throat> and SFU was another Simon Fraser University was another spot that we used to go riding a lot. 
Um, I just, you know, being right behind these guys and passing them and being right in the right in the thick of it was really exciting. And I was like, man, like we're doing this riding, we're we're, we're doing these crazy stunts all the time, and it's never getting documented. I want to I want to film this, you know. I want to mm. I want to check this. I want to show people how exciting this is, you know. So it was always cars following people down the hill and people hanging out the sunroof trying to, you know, film these adventures and stuff like that. And, um, but I was like, nah, man, I want to be, I want to, I want a rider's perspective of what that's like, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, so I bought a, I bought a Canon camcorder and I bought a VO sport camera and, um, and I bought this little backpack, which was like one of those um, backpacks that hikers use to, to carry like a, a craft of water, you know, yeah. so that they can, yep. you know, just suck on the ho- suck on the hose when they get dehydrated. Yeah. And I convert I converted that into a um, a camera bag, and then the the and then I ran the line up up the the back of my suit, and then connected the VO Sport camera, which was like a kind of like a a pencil cam. Um, on the top of my top of my helmet, and so a you GoPro know, before a, a GoPro. Oh yeah, yeah. This was two thousand and oh geez. Like if you look back, you'll see some you'll see some rare footage of of myself and Mike Benda and uh, Kevin Reimer going down Cypress, <clears throat> probably close to eighty kilometers an hour. You know. Um, and you so you'd see people like Mike Bender like just just blasting past me, right? <laughs> so, but and, but that's shot that's, that's footage from that camera. And was was Kevin like a, a grommet at this stage? Was he just a young kid? Well, how I met Kevin was he was he was uh, really excited about skateboarding, and at the time I was on the onshore board, and he wanted to be. He approached me about um, riding the onshore board. And so he, he really liked the onshore board and, um, and so he approached me about riding the onshore board. And so we gave him a, excuse me. So we, um, we, we gave him an onshore board and, you know, he rode a little bit, but I think, I think he was always a speed demon. So he, he had a, I think he had an Evo back in the day and he got on a, uh, an Evo and started learning to go really fast. So I think that, the onshore board wasn't really suited for his, his style of riding. So, and it was around the same time I got the flush cut. So, so, you know, we would, we would just go out and rip to do some riding together. And, and there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, uh, there, I don't know. I wouldn't, shouldn't say a lot. There was a couple dozen downhill skateboarders in Vancouver at that time, but the people that I rode with the most were, were like, you know, you know, the, the, the tight knit sort of close longboarding community and, and that kind of stuff. So, so do you know what approximately what year this would be? Is this like 2005 or 2006? This is 2000. Yeah. 2006. Yeah. So Kevin would have been, he's a teenager basically. Yeah. I met Kevin when he was 15, I believe 15, 14 or 15. Mm. Was when I met him. It was at a coast a coast longboarding seawall cruise, and um, <clears throat> after the cruise, there was a little session happening down by the beach, and he came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, that's a really cool board. Can I try that out?" And then he tried it and liked it, and so 
but it wasn't really about the board or anything. It was just, you know, we just became friends and, and sort of that kind of, that kind of deal. And, and, um, yeah. So, so what did was, you do so, with all that? What did you do with the footage? So you, you're capturing footage at this stage, there's well, I, no YouTube, there's no, <clears throat> um, yeah, so are you um, editing I this just, video? I, yeah, I just stockpiled the footage on these tapes. I, I had tapes that it was during the tape era, so I, I had all these tapes, and I had a um, a Sony <clears throat> Sony computer, um, which was you know the um, the cat's ass at the time. I had this little Sony computer, and I so I invested in a computer and a camera, and I just used I. Uh, not iMovie, but uh, Windows Movie Maker. Yeah. And um, um, there was a uh, influential skateboarder by the name of Rocky Anderson. And Rocky was really involved in the coast coast community back in the day. And um, he had this little shop at the top of uh, Lonsdale, which is right near the mountains in, in North Vancouver. And uh, Rocky and I became really good friends. And we hung out a lot. And... Um, and he had this little tiny shop, and then he had this vision of creating this this shop with a skate park inside it, and this kind of stuff. And um, around the same time he opened the shop, he decided to do a um, a film festival. And so that was kind of my inspiration to create an actual film was to take all this footage that I've been stockpiling over the or over the years, probably around 2005, 2006, and <clears throat> put it into some sort of some sort of video for the world to see and i i was hoping the world would see it but really it was just you know the 100 or so people that came down to the party the the film festival party and so that was my first film was do you remember what it was do you remember what it was called i just called it film festival i just called it the collabo volume two film festival was what i called it do you still have it oh yeah yeah, it's uh, it's online. I mean, I can, I, b- I believe it's on. It's either on um, Vimeo or YouTube or something like that. I recently uploaded it to my Instagram in ten different, pe- ten different. Um, so, so it's it's uh, the quality is quite low. So what I did is I took um, I I took it and uh, I chopped it up into ten different pieces and then put it on my Instagram. And so you can see all the classic footage on my Instagram there. Okay, so it was so Calabo had been formed at this stage. Uh, okay, so that was that was um, so Calabo. The original Calabo was myself, um, uh, Max Irwin, um, Kevin Reimer, and. And then later, and then I think a year later, Brienne, Brienne joined the team too. So it was just the, it was just the four of us at the time. Um, myself, and, Brienne, Ma- Max, and Kevin. And so the, the, so at that time it was just a t- like, it was just a team for me to generate um, sponsorship for these. I mean, how, how it sort of came to be is I would go to these races and at the races, these, these American riders would show up with like flats of energy drinks or flats of juice or whatever it was at that time. And, um, 
and they had uh, they had their expenses paid for and they were you know leather suits and i was like what the hell like these guys are all hooked up and these canadian riders are are much much better or around the same or equal so why aren't they getting helped out as much and it was the whole you know american in canada thing so these American writers were getting a lot of support and I felt like the Canadian writers were kind of getting, were kind of getting neglected. So, um, so I wanted to put together a team of writers, um, that sort of squashed the politics that were happening in, in the Vancouver area at that time. And, um, and so I basically took one writer from all these brands that were competing against each other. Uh, to create collabo, and that was sort of the original where the word collabo came from was collaboration, you know, collaboration um, through innovation, you know. And so originally, so originally it was formed for like writer sponsorship, or was yeah, it writer. also a media sort of film sort of thing as well, or did that come later? Well, the first video that I ever made was was. Um, myself and kevin it was just me and kevin so we were just basically just you know just goofing around with cameras getting footage you know i'd film him sliding down the hill and and then you know occasionally somebody would have a shot of me and so i'd put together these sort of these little rider videos and it was just it was just me and kevin and you know other coast longboarding coast longboarding riders um so the first video was myself and Kevin. The second video was I called Film Festival, which was um, was everybody like just all the all the footage that I had from coast longboarding events. Um, uh, and then yeah, and then Volume Three was was sort of the official wasn't very wasn't very good, but it was the official video, uh, which was myself. Nate, oh, that's who it was. Nate Lang, myself, um, Kevin, Kevin, and Max. So those were the first four riders, and then later Brianne Davies joined the team. And and what I did for these riders was I just sort of agreed to create awareness for their abilities. So, and in and in turn they would just sort of rep rep collabo. And I didn't even have T-shirts or anything at the time. It was just maybe I maybe I had stickers. I made some stickers for their helmets. And and then I would um, I would contact brands and different uh, sponsors and try to get try to get them support for 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 their skills because they were really really good at what they did. And when you did those early videos, what was the distribution? As in, like it was just purely DVD. Was there any way to upload it, or could you put it on Coast Longboarding, or no? Um, there was a, a thing called, I think it was called Blip TV. Oh yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the first thing I used was called, was called Blip TV. And, um, that was, I think that was before YouTube became the sensation that it is. Yeah. And, uh, the, um, and so I would, uh, so what I would do is I would upload stuff to there. I think, I think that's what I used to use. And so then I made a video, um, and and then I would ask photographers at the European events and different events that I couldn't go to to send me some photos of them on the podium. And then I just made a video um, that showed 
that tried to show all the races that they won. And then at the end of the year, I would just say, hey, guys, what races did you win? And between Kevin, Nate, uh, and Max, there was like dozens and dozens of podiums. So they... So they were able to get a little bit more support from different people. So, you know, Jim Z would sponsor, started sponsoring Max Irwin and Rain Longboard started sponsoring Brianne. But, you know, I don't, I don't take credit for, for their sponsorship. It, it was their skills that, that, uh, it was their skills that got them sponsored. It wasn't really the videos. It was just sort of a little, like a little extra boost to, to create some awareness, uh, globally for, for what they were doing and those that first like that first collabo team like um kevin i mean yeah did you did you think that he would be as good as he was going to be like from, uh, from early on was he like as talented as he turned out to be like literally one of the best downhill skaters of all time i mean yeah, yeah. I always, I actually always had a lot of confidence in in Kevin because he was always, uh, he was always very level headed and very um, optimistic, you know, about the future. A lot more mature. Like you know, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties. He's in his, he's in his mid teens, mid to late teens, and you know, on many levels, he was just as mature as I was. He's always know? been like that, has he? Because that was the one thing that struck me when I when I met him in. 2009 which was wow like you're very like you like you just said very level-headed very mature very you know what i mean not like a lot of the skaters at the time yeah that's right he was like he just really i guess he really um uh, struck me as as um like a, somebody that i could that i could confide in and somebody that i could um um shoot the shit about on on real issues and and so so it was around the same time that he was going through a little bit of a shift um you know he was riding a land yachts board and then he decided to start riding a a rain long board and um that created uh, that created a um I guess a little bit of animosity within the community because, you know, it was coast longboarding was always a, a real, uh, pro, pro, um, land yachts community. And so mm. rain came to the scene and Kevin was riding a land yachts board for many years. I think the Evo and different boards. And, and then he decided to, he decided to, to join the, to, to, to ride a rain longboards. And, um, and he was sort of, um, he wasn't able, he wasn't invited to the sessions. Like he, you know, he spent years riding with these, with these um, different land yachts riders. And when he started riding a rain, rain longboards, he was, he was sort of outcasted from that community. And I thought, I thought that was, at that time, I thought that was complete bullshit. Mm. So, so I set out and I said, this is, I mean, this is garbage. I hate this shit. So, so I started, um, uh, I started Calabo for that, for that reason to squash the politics because, you know, I rode the onshore board and, and I was accepted despite the board that I was riding. Mm. And when Kevin, Kevin joined rain back in the day, he was, um, 
he was there was a there was a period there where he was outcasted from 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 the from the downhill sessions that he the, so his so he so he started riding with a lot less people and i guess he got more of a tight-knit community um that he started riding with and i thought this is brutal so i took so i contacted ian commission and i said hey i want to start this team called collabo um i want to have a quebec rider a land yachts rider and a rain rider on the team what do you think of this idea and ian was like like i love it sure i'll sponsor max max is a, a ripper he does so then max got sponsored by quebec um nate lang got sponsored by land yachts because of his skill and like i said i always say it's because of their skill not because of what i did mm. and um and kevin was sponsored by rain and so it was so then i launched this team called collabo which was sort of a a mishmash of all these different companies and people were like what's collabo like they for 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 like the first year that i had this collabo initiative people were like what's collabo like what's that all about they were kind of confused maybe a little bit scared you know what's that all about and and um <laughs> and, I, and i was never really completely vocal as to why i started collabo but that was the reason it was it was sort of this this drift that was happening between the community because of market share you know people wanted to capitalize on 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 sales and i'm not i'm not saying it's this company more than that company i mean they're um at that time there was a lot of great things happening in the community but there was also a lot of politics happening right yeah so uh, so i so in my first video you see at the end it says who cares what you ride as as long as you ride and that was that was where that came from was sort of this this drift that was happening in the community and i i mean it's a ethos that's also very much sounds like Michael Brook as well. I mean, he has a very much like open 100% everything skateboarding sort of mentality too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah, that's right. That's exactly. Michael and I have always gotten along really well. So do you think probably, that's a probably, Canadian probably. thing? Is that a Canadian thing, do you think? Or is it just like that's just. It's um, just like a, it, that's an, an individual sort of skater sort of thing. I don't, you... I, I don't think it was a Canadian thing because the, the, um, the animosity and the, the, the sort of this separatism that was happening in the community at the time was Canadians. You know, it mm. wasn't, um, do you think it was a lot Canadians of, that was, do you think a lot of that is just like people fighting for business as in like you know, I either get more sales or I go out of business sort of thing. You know what I mean? That's where the aggressiveness came from. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's partly because of market share, but I also think it's, you know, people take things personal, you know, you help mm. out a, you help out a rider and you really want them to be part of your squad and you go to your way to, to mm. customize a board for them or you teach them, you teach riders, you know, you know, you bring them into the workshop and you, and you, spend you know you spend your your valuable time mentoring them and then suddenly they're on they're on the competitor's team i mean you know that stuff can be hurtful right yeah well i mean we, i mean australia had a similar sort of thing in you know probably 2012 2011 2012 where you know i my brand hopkins skate you know we had a a team 
and you know they come very protective of you know their of the brand of you know who's supporting them so you know as the market grows and there's more competitors and you know brands come in from overseas and when i'm talking about brands i'm talking about skate shop brands you know we had a yeah. lot of am- animosity into the the scene i mean i never promoted that but you know what i mean when you name a company after yourself and people represent you in a way you get blamed for stuff, but a lot of the times it's just, I don't know, it's hard to explain. You can't justify it, but it's um, its one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's human nature, unfortunately. Yeah, it is and, human nature, you know, yeah. I think, I as, I think as, we, as we grow, as, as we grow, we start to, you know, realize that, that uh, you know, we're never going to be on our, on our deathbed and, and saying, oh, you know, I wish I... I wish I did better business or, or I wish I, well, I wish I handled that situation better. You know, you're going to be thinking about a lot more important stuff. Right. So yeah. at the, at the end, at the end of our time, we're not going to be thinking about this stuff. So, um, you know, like my father always said, um, don't, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, mm. you know, don't, don't, don't dwell on, on the bullshit, you know, mm. try to try to try to think of the things that are important in life. Mm. So those late, people to the collaborate team like I'm thinking of um Brianne. Was she as good as she was then? Was she like up and coming? When when did Brianne come in? So Because so, I mean she uh, did yeah, win original... like world championships. She was like the number one unbeatable skater in the world. She like retired almost unbeatable, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah. She well she was always a really talented rider. Um but I think I think around the same time that I put together Max, Kevin, and Nate on the same team was when Brianne really started to flourish and do super well and really stand out. Um, and, and wow, you know, watching her ride was super impressive. So like it was, it was a no brainer to have a, have a female rider on the team. Mm. And so, so it was, a, that was around the same time that, um, that I met Patrick Weir who is a, uh, uh, he's now a, a renowned drone pilot, um, uh, filmer. Um, but he was the co-producer of the, the, the fellowship. And, um, so the story is, is it's to make a long story short, I'll try my best is, um, I was, uh, friends with a, with a hip hop group in Vancouver and they were, they were making a, a music video. And when they were making this music video, they asked me to come out to the shoot. And so I came out to help out. And at that shoot, there was a, a film student by the name of Errol Lazard. God rest his soul. He passed away a few years back. Um, he was uh, he was sort of the producer filmer of this music video that they were creating. And at that shoot, um, I, I met, I talked to him about, hey, I want to, this is, you know, this stuff's all really, he had a big crane and he had the right camera gear and the right sound equipment. And he just, he was just doing it right, you know? And, um, and at that shoot, um, I met him and we we sort of became acquaintances slash friends. And I said, Hey, would you be interested in filming some downhill skateboarding? And this is like when HD cameras were first starting to come out. And, um, and he said, yeah, sure. Like, you know, that sounds great. Um, I'd love to check that out. And so at the top of, 
um, North Burnaby there, there's this spot that everybody goes to. And, and I invited a bunch of riders, uh, maybe 10 or 15 riders to come out for this, this shoot. And we had this 30 foot boom cam and arrow arrow was manning the boom cam. And at that shoot, he brought, a a production assistant who was his friend who was also in the film school that he went to named Patrick Weir and Patrick, uh, Weir and I became friends quickly because he had a real passion for documenting, documenting, um, you know, innovative and cool things. And, and, and I knew all the writers. And so we connected real quickly. And at that shoot, I said, you know, what do you think about, what do you think about coming up for some more shoots? And he was really excited about it. And, um, and he was so excited about it that he, he made a 30 second teaser video. Um, so the whole thing about the, the, the fellowship of the bearing, which wasn't called that at the time was it was supposed to be a secret, secret project because I wanted to do all the filming and then get like, you know, a, a stockpile of footage created before anybody even knew that we were creating the, the project. Right. Yeah. But Pat got so excited about it that he, um, he sent. He created this thirty-second teaser that just blew everybody's mind. Everybody was just like, "What the hell is this? This is so amazing!" And it was the crane footage from that shoot, right? Right. And um, and I don't know if he sent it directly to Kevin or if I showed Kevin or something, but Kevin posted it on Silverfish, and people just went bananas. It had like four hundred in like. One hour, it had like 400 views, which was amazing <laughs> at that time. And, and what would uh, have it been hosted on? Yeah, I don't know. YouTube or Vimeo or maybe it was just uploaded yeah. as a file. In those days, you could just upload files, it, couldn't you? Like a 30-second, it was probably just a, a move file. Yeah. Or a... Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so I didn't want that leaked, but he, but somebody leaked it. And I, th- I think it was Kevin who leaked it. Um, and, uh, so the cat was kind of out of the bag at that time. So yeah. people, so everybody knew about it suddenly and, Oh, what's this, what's Dan doing? What's collabo? And, and Pat did like an amazing job because he's a really talented filmmaker. Um, and this is, this is before he even graduated from, from, um, uh, the, the school, right. Yeah. Um, and um and so yeah so that was around the same time that Brianne Davies was was just really blowing away people with her skill and um and so I asked her to join the team too and then within 6 months I had a meeting at my apartment in Burnaby and I invited Pat and the whole collabo team which was officially um Brianne, Max, Kevin and Nate um to my um, apartment and we had a meeting and I showed them a, I showed them a, a video that a, a, a snowboarding video that really inspired me and I said hey I want to create a video like this but for downhill skateboarding and Pat is our man and he's you know a brilliant shooter and really talented filmmaker and we're going to create this together let's let's do it and and then I had like this sort of little contract that I, which wasn't really a contract. It was more like a vision statement of what, what I wanted to create. And, uh, everybody was 
really stoked about it. But um, but I should there's a caveat to that as well, and the caveat is people you know people were stoked about creating a film like that, but when you actually sit down or when you actually go out to shoot with riders, um, there was a little bit of a learning curve there for the, for, for the riders to realize that shooting is different than skateboarding, you know? Um, and, um, and what I mean by that is, you know, filmers have to, for, for a shot to be that good, sometimes filmers have to set up the shot and, you know, riders will be standing there for, 10, 15 minutes waiting and, and, you know, they just want to skate, you know, they don't want to deal with that shit. Sounds like a, um, IGSA race. <laughs> <laughs> Standing at the pretty, top of the hill much. waiting. I shouldn't, I shouldn't yeah. pick on IGSA because IDF's the same. Sometimes everyone's just standing up the hill going, what is going on? Why are we waiting? <laughs> yeah. Well, if, yeah, if it wasn't for IGSA, then people wouldn't even know what organized downhill skateboarding is, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're all standing on um, his shoulders, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a quick hop edit. The name of the person I'd just forgotten then was Marcus Reimer. He's the founder of IGSA and the organizing body before IDF. So this is 2008. 2008. Yeah, okay. so I'll start to remember date. I'll start. To, we're close enough now that I'll start to remember some date. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the um, two thousand and two thousand to two thousand and nine is all a blur, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But now we're getting. But now we're getting closer that I'll start to remember stuff. So this is. But it's the same thing with it's same with the the history that I'm I'm part of in Australian downhill. I literally only start remembering stuff after Newtons, which is like two thousand eight, or everything from. 2007 and 6 and 5, I just can't remember. You know what I mean? Was I there? Was yeah. I not? You know what I mean? Because there was so much yeah. online stuff. You know, you read so many stories, sometimes your, your memory gets blurred of what you're doing. So you decided, did you put down a time frame of how long it was going to take to make a movie? Like what was the original? So do you remember that, so snowboard, original... do you remember that snowboard movie? Um, yeah. It'll if, come to me. Oh, okay. If you can't, we'll put a link in. We'll remember later and Mac, put a link Mac, to it. Mac Dog, it was Mac Dog Productions. Okay. It was called Mac Dog Productions, and it was one of their first videos. And and what and, yeah, what so, did you like? What was it that you liked about the video? That it was cinematic? Uh, yeah, cinematic, and it, it you know inspired you to just get really excited about snowboarding. Like, and I think the I think. So was it a visual the... thing? Was there a story? No, no. It was just like after the video, you just want to go skate. You just want to go snowboarding. You know, like that's the kind of video I wanted to create. Was after the video, after you finish watching the video, you just you just want to go riding. And so, you know, the the original idea was to create parts for each rider. Yeah, yeah. So classic each skateboard. Ri- each... Yeah, video. Yeah. So each rider and the team would have their own part. And um, we we strayed away from, or I strayed away from that, I should say, because I realized after the first couple of shoots that it was going to be a lot harder to get the, these riders' attention because they weren't seeing the results of what we were shooting, mm. which was probably probably a mistake I made was was 
it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like I wasn't going to show them the footage. It was more like, you know, I just, I forgot the importance of showing riders the quality of what you're shooting so they can be like, oh, that's great. Like, yeah, let's keep doing that. So we would shoot these shoots and then after the shoot, they would never see the footage. So they could, they couldn't, they didn't stay as stoked as I was on, on, on completing the production. Yeah. So, you know, myself and the uh, cinematographers that were on the production were all really excited because we saw the quality of what we were shooting. Yeah. And, and, and what I say, we, it's like, I wasn't, I actually didn't hold the camera for the entire shoot. I mean, I held the camera for, for the cameraman, but my, my whole thing was I knew that I wasn't as, as um, a good a shooter as these guys that were trained to shoot. So instead of setting up these, these shoots and not confident on the quality, I would be like, okay, I'd rather pay these guys a hundred or a couple hundred bucks to come out for the day. Sometimes they'd come up for free. Sometimes, you know, I'd pay them when I could. Um, but, you know, I, I just didn't want to get these riders to do these crazy stunts and, and go for these wild adventures and, and not come away with like really nice footage. So, so I think that was probably the mistake I made was was not showing these riders the the quality of of the footage at the end of the day. So, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so was there a so, was there a story, or did you have scenes that you knew that you wanted to do, or was it just getting out there and finding the scenes? Well, it was it was um, the filmer Roman Bamburan, who was the other shooter on the film, um, and. <clears throat> So Pat liked kind of like the what what they call what Roman called it was whatever shooting. So there wasn't like a script or there was never a script for anything that we ever shot for for the fellowship. Um, it was kind of like, hey, we're going out skating. I got a shooter. Uh, let's let's go let's go document what we're doing. And so we would we would document whatever what was happening. So it really is pure skateboarding that film because there was never really anything that was scripted. Um, there was a few shots that we had to choreograph in order for, for the, for these brilliant cinematographers to get, you know, crisp, clean shots. Mm. But in general, it was like, it was true skateboarding because it was just like, these guys were doing whatever they wanted and, and these shooters were as good as they were and they would get the shot, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we'd have to get them to do certain things a few more times sometimes, but you know, it, it was true skateboarding in, in my, in my opinion. So do you think, in hindsight, do you think that was a mistake because it sort of <clears throat> niched the movie just to the, to the, you know, the people that love the sport or skateboarders? Or do you think that's, that was in its sense, it's pure essence? Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it was a gift and a curse. I think the, the gift was, you know, these riders were able to skate naturally whatever way they wanted to skate mm. and and i think the curse was um at the end of the production after a year of shooting uh myself and and roman were sitting in a, in the editing suite and we're like man we 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 got all this great footage but we don't have a story like we've got you know it's it's true skateboarding but there's no story to tell so people are going to be bored of just watching the same stuff 
so what do we do? So we so we went out and we shot interviews. So we shot um de- I basically came up with a bunch of questions and I shot interviews of every of every writer. Um every collabo writer anyways. And that that video never surfaced because we ran out of time, we ran out of money and we just wanted to get the product out and so we we finished it. But there is there is actually a story and some really 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 great um interview footage that that has never surfaced so part of it has surfaced there was that kevin reimer sort of newton's like interview something like that you're talking about um so there there's there there might have been little segments or there might have been like if you watch the fellowship of the bearing You'll see little inserts where you'll see Mike Mike McGoldrick talking or Kevin or Brianne. Yeah. And those were like little mini mini bites of each interview. There was it didn't even it wasn't even tip of the iceberg of of what of what kind of footage. There's probably I think Kevin's interview was an hour an hour and a half and Brianne's was at least an hour and. Mike McGoldrick's was at least an hour, so all this all this footage is out there. Um, there's even an interview. There's even an interview of me in the video that that has never surfaced about about where Collabo came from and and how the coast long how how the video came to be and stuff like that. But do you still have that? Um, yeah, I've got all the footage for sure. Yeah, definitely. Really? Yep. Oh yeah. So you still got all the interview stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a dream of mine to to um, do a re-release. I mean, in 2000, 2019 is going to be the 10-year anniversary, so may, maybe I can get some some um, sponsors together to to have uh, Roman Roman, who is the lead editor on the film, sit down and spend a month editing. You know, um, but think- these guys, these guys, these guys sacrifice so much. I would never ask them to do it do anything for free ever again. No. So how much do you think you'd need? 10 grand? Uh, 10 grand? No, I think, I think I could probably, I don't know. I think, I think if they were to sit down and do a re-edit, I think, you know, between three and five grand would probably, probably cut it. Okay. I'm sure we'll, uh, I mean, someone, someone, there must be a brand out there or three brands that want to put up 1500 each. For a re-release in 2019. Well, yeah, that's just for the, that's just for the edit, right? To be able to, yeah. to to be able to to do the duplication. Yeah, I guess you know, I guess ten grand would probably probably be pretty fair to to get it all done, to get it all done and re-released. So when you're saying re-release, you mean do another DVD or release it online? Yeah, right? like like I I'd like, I'd like to call it the true Fellowship of the Bearing, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> there's just so much footage that never surfaced because we were just kind of under a crunch to get it done. And after 13 months of, you know, you got to understand as, as much as Patrick Weir was immensely, like he was a huge catalyst to making the film happen, but he also had his own dream, which is totally understandable. And that was to move to the Yukon and, and start um, using drones for filming. And now he's one of the best drone drone filmers in the world. No, really. And and so it it 
Wow. Yeah. If you, I'll, um, like back then, though, he, he, that was what he wanted to do? He wanted to be a drone filmer. Like, um, and that was when drones weren't even really a big thing. They were wow. just starting to come out. That's just, and now that is really like looking the, into the future, isn't it? Oh, he, he was, yeah, he was way ahead of the, he was always way ahead of the curve. Wow. And so about three months before we finished the film, he decided to move to the Yukon and I never got angry at him for it because like, I totally understood with, you know, how he felt about, um, you know, living his own dream mm. and, you know, the, and also like we were out of money. So a lot of these guys were working for free and, you know, it was really like a bootstrap production. So, yeah. so I, I can't say I didn't really have a leg to stand on. And, uh, of course I also really implored and, you know, I really thought that, um, it was, a, it was a good move. So, so he went to the Yukon and he worked on, um, gold rush, which was a, a production that was shot in the Yukon. And, and now he works for, um, um, a company in Vancouver who does like Porsche commercials and, you know, just like ama- this amazing, amazing work. Okay. So if there's a, um, any young people out there, anyone that wants to get into film producing, wants to uh, put together some financing for this uh, reboot in 2019, there you go. Here's your chance. Or if you're a brand that's looking for, I don't know, content for your website or, I don't know if you want to put it all up or there's three or four brands. I think, um, I don't know, 12 months, make it happen, put it out there, see what happens. I mean, I'd, I'd love to put it, I'd love to put it on Vino for free for everybody to see. Yeah. You know, just, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't mind, uh, I don't mind that option as well. You know, just mm. getting it, just getting it on Vimeo for free. Yeah. Okay. So the comp- the company he works for now is called Peacemaker Filmworks. And okay. they're, they're uh, peacemakerfilmworks.ca. And, um, yeah, so he's... Uh, they all went on and did big stuff. Yeah, so Roman is a... Roman, who is the lead editor, he's... Um, he's uh, He went back to school for a few years and took... Um, uh, took animation and... You know, so so he would be the guy that that I would get to re-edit it mm. because he already knows all the footage, mm. and he always wanted to, him and I were both. You know, we were kind of like, all right, this 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 film's good, but it's not good enough, and so that's always been a thing. You know, we we wanted we wanted to do more, and 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 uh, and so yeah, it's just kind of one of those projects that we just. You know, it had to had to put on hold indefinitely until we can get some financing together to mm. to finish off the true Fellowship of the Bearing. You know, mm. Mike McGoldrick. When did he did he just become part of the team for the film? Like he was that's and Quinn. Yeah, so I I always well I always wanted Mike to be on the team, but um, he's an incredible but he skater. Really, yeah, he sure was, and you know he was he was one of the innovators you know, one of the skaters that was in that, in our scene anyways, that was doing like not using his hands at all. You know, everybody was, you know, when, when I was skating, it was all about gloves down and doing Coleman slides and ripping around corners and using your hands to, to drift around the corner and this kind of stuff. And, and, and Mike, of course he could do that stuff too, but he was one of the guys that was first started doing stand up slides 
in all the so we'd go to these so he started doing these sessions called slope style sessions right. um and and the slope style sessions was was just style like there was up until mike's sessions it was all about speed yeah. and then mike introduced these sessions called slope style and i think he was probably inspired or at least i was inspired by noah sakamoto because noah would come to um the slide jam and everybody would be doing these, you know, 360 slides with their hands down. And then, and then, and you can see it in one of my, one of the clips there that I uploaded to Instagram. And, um, you'll see him doing these big stand up slides on like a more of a, a hard wheel deck, but he was just ripping down the road. And, and so, yeah, Mike would put on these slope style sessions and he was always just such a, a such a, a rad guy to hang out with that, um, I, I asked him one day, I said, <clears throat> let's, let's go out and shoot together. And you, you pick what you want to shoot. You, you call the shots on the shoot. I'll just come out and I'll just make sure I got a shooter and I'll spot the corners for you. And, and, and you call the shots. And so if you watch the, the fellowship of the bearing, you'll see Mike's, there's a little part there for Mike. And, um, and he, he basically called the shots on, on all of that stuff. And I was just there to support him. And and then after that, I said, hey, you, why don't you join the team? And I don't know why. He was kind of reluctant for a while. And then eventually he decided to join. And then so I made some stickers for him and asked him to put Clabo on his leathers. And he did. And But um, and then, then when I released the video, uh, just before I released the video, we did one last interview. And that was with, with Mike McGoldrick. was in um, downtown Vancouver. Yeah, because he's got some design chops on him as well. I mean, he... He was the main inspiration for that nine two five deck, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah. So he. I mean, that he, is um, just. I mean, I don't know how many of those we've sold. Probably one of the biggest selling land yacht boards we've had. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great board. He did a fantastic job on it for sure, and, and so did land yachts. I mean, land yachts is, uh, from what I from what I gather, has always been really good at listening to their riders mm, yeah. and and. And getting some feedback as to you know how to how to build a uh, a better board for their style of skating. Not just here's a board. Good luck. Good luck on learning how to use it. It's more like okay, here's a board. Let us know what you want to change, and and we'll change it to to meet your skating style. So mm. Mike was doing these big stand up these toe side stand up slides, and I, I guess maybe his foot was slipping slipping. So then he so then he incorporated those gas pedals into the into the side there so that he could do toe side stand-ups and, and dig his foot right in without it slipping off. Mm. It's funny that... that and you'll that, see... You're, yeah, go on. You'll see in the early videos that I made him him doing those stand-up slides. I think he was on a rain longboards at the time, but you'll see him doing those. Yeah, because the, the, it's around that time, you know, the sport was changing, especially downhill racing. I've got some old interviews with the orangutan team from 2008, 2009, which is like the Calabo years as well. And especially at, I think it was Perigues or one of the French races where it was, it was almost like the changing of the guard. The Europeans were all the foot breakers and all that foot breaking started to go out and the free riding, the young people that had been, grew up free riding and doing slope style and, you know, stand up slides, they converted that into, you know, going faster into corners and getting around corners in racing and just basically smashed the 
smash the scene, you know. Kevin and Scoot, Jacko, you know, Patrick Switzer, they all just killed it. Well, you know, it's interesting in the, the interview with Kevin, he mentions how, you know, how he, you know, how he predicts skateboarding going as far as downhill skateboarding goes. And, you know, his, his ideas seemed like they were sort of revolutionary or, or, or really original ideas, but within a year, a year of him saying it, it exactly what he said would happen happened you know mm. so yeah so those i think he was saying about drift drifting around corners and you know this kind of stuff and yeah it happened exactly like you said yeah it's um it's amazing how young some of these guys were but we forget how long they'd been skating for you know what i mean in in age they're quite young but you know they'd been skating hard for like three four or five years so you know i mean jack yeah, jacko actually right. his background was sliding skateboard sliding like oh, like brazilian sky right? you know brazilian style on a skateboard you know doing that's why he, he converted that into um you know sliding through corners and drifting so well right right cool mm. and so i mean you said that one of the goals of, you know, Fellowship of the Bearing was to get people to be excited to skate. And, I mean, your next project that you fell into was the skate school. So, I mean, it worked, didn't it? Well, so, yeah, so what, hap- what happened was um, we released the, the Fellowship of the Bearing and some people called it the fellowship of the boring. <laughs> and the reason they called it that is because, because, because of the cinematic elements to the, to the film, you know, it was shot very beautifully and the scenery was, was a big part of it. And, and the reason that the reason for that is because the thing that I always liked about downhill skateboarding was being at you know, I almost, I'm not sure what I like more, being at the top of the mountain or being at the bottom of the mountain. At the top of the mountain, you get to enjoy the views and the, the beauty of, of, of being in a, a mountainous region. And then at the bottom of the mountain, you get the, you, you have the exhilaration and the, the adrenaline pumping and the, the, the thrill of, of conquering the mountain and all this stuff. So, you know, within the hour, Within all with, all within one hour of, of your session, you you just you experience you experience so much stuff, right? So mm. much. It, you know, it's almost a spiritual experience for me at the top. You know, if you're with a a crew of good of good guys and or girls, and and um and you just you know just enjoying being there. Yeah. And then and then you you know the camaraderie of of riding down the mountain together and and trusting each other at you know upwards of a hundred kilometers an hour, and then. And then getting to the bottom all in one piece is, is, is a, a con, you know, like I say, it's like you're conquering the mountain, you know? And, um, and, and because of, because, you know, non skateboarders were able to appreciate the film as well, you know, you know, that's why it was picked up by, you know, National Geographic and the Banff, Banff Center Film Festival and, you know, these type of outlets because, because it wasn't just for skateboarders. It was for, it was for the world, 
mm. for everybody to be able to appreciate. So you got you got a hardcore skater who, and some of the feedback I got was, oh no, it's got to be more of a skate film, you know. And I never ever listened to any of the feedback because you know you're always going to have naysayers or people that that hate on what you've done. Yeah. I mean, no matter how no matter how good it is. Um, I mean, unless you're somebody like Travis Rice, who has like a, you know, $3 million budget or whatever, but you got to remember, we created, we created the fellowship of the bearing with like, like really like the, the epitome of a, of a shoestring budget. Yeah. Like at times I didn't, at times I didn't even have a job. You know, I worked at a liquor store part time and I had a child on the way. My, My wife was like seven months pregnant when we were editing the video and, you're just like ridiculous um, uh, roadblocks to overcome. So the fact that, that that film even got made was, or even got to to that stage is, will always re- remain like a big accomplishment of mine because a lot of people don't have any idea of what happened behind the scenes, right? To get it to actually come to, to fruition. Oh, it's, so, it's a, so a huge I didn't give a shit what anybody said at that point. I was just like, or I finished it. Oh, <laughs> at least I finished it. Yeah, know, absolutely. Kind of a, I mean, and, it's and a, I, it was a, a. I mean, a huge, huge. Like, I mean, until someone actually tries to do a big project like that, you have no idea how much it, you know, consumes your life. You just want to. Oh yeah, unless unless you have something to back up your opinion, then you can just shut the fuck up. Do you think you would have changed the name if you could? Like, you know, in hindsight, like you were naming your, like your films, like Calabo and that sort of stuff. Should it have been called Calabo or? Well, originally I was going to call it the um, Lord of the Bearing, but I just, I just didn't like using the word Lord in, in, in the name of the film yep. because there, there was no real Lord or I didn't really, I think it was really about the community. It wasn't really about one particular rider. Mm. And, and so, so that, so at the end of the day, it, it really was a fellowship of, of people that made that, that video possible. Right. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't think I would, I, I, I mean, if I, if I dig really deep, I could probably think of other alternatives uh, that I was thinking about, mm. but, but I had, but um, my, my good friend Jason Bamford, who's a brilliant graphic designer, really did really amazing things with the branding and yeah. And, oh, the the graphics and, of it is amazing. It really is. Like <laughs> that DVD cover is awesome. Yeah. So thanks, I appreciate that. Like that was that was like my idea, but it wouldn't have been possible without you know good people on my team. Just like the the video was my. The film was my idea, but you know, I never ever take credit for any of that stuff because it's it's you know I'm good at putting people together, but I also I'm well aware that for a polished polished product, you know, you have to have good people on your team. Mm. So the school of writing that I mean, did that literally come out of like you know people more people wanting to get into skateboarding, or was that just a natural I mean, you sound like you were a natural teacher anyway. So do you think that's, you just drifted well, towards that? At the, at the end of the production, which was 2009, uh, I think it was September, October, 2009. Um, I was, 
I had a child on the way. Um, I was so broke from just trying to finish the film. And I was kind of like at the end of my whim, you know, the, 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 it kind of like the, the fellowship sort of is the, is the straw that broke the camel's back. Is that, is that the same, the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah. And I was like, just really over it all. Like I still loved the skateboard, but I didn't want to, I had no entrepreneurial desire at all. And, and I think partly the reason was, is because I didn't really have a product and, and somebody leaked the video online. You know, I, I did a nice little, on the original collabo DVD, you can see on the inside cover, there's a nice little statement saying like, please don't, you know, if, if, um, if people purchase this video, then we'll be able to go on to make more videos mm, and, yeah. you know, uh, I, I tried. I tried to do the nice approach. And I mean, that was a big it. issue at that time. I mean, that was a huge issue, as in the technology. I mean, that was in the like yeah, um, the torrents. It was the yeah, it was the, it was the of era of search, right? the start of the torrents and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, so at times I guess, and so so people leaked it online, and everybody started downloading it for free, and and um, you know, I sold. I sold about 5,000 copies of the video through distributors and land yachts did a really good job. And, mm. um, there's, there's some, there's distributors all over the world that were doing it. And then I found out one distributor in Europe, um, who the idea was to make the film affordable for skaters to be able to buy. Yeah. There was never, there was never an idea in my mind to make it expensive. Mm. And I always wanted it to retail for 20, 25 bucks at the most. Mm. And I, and I found out a, a retailer was importing them and selling them for like $45. And I was so, I was so angry at that because that's the type of stuff that pushes skateboarders to find cheaper alternatives, like downloading it for free. Yeah. yeah true. So my, my, my original, I guess, uh, vision was to, was to make it affordable so that it's it doesn't break your break your wallet to be able to own a film, and so I wanted to make it really cheap, and so I I tried to make all these distributors and retailers retail it for the same price no matter where they bought it in the world, mm. and and I found out one one retailer over in Europe was selling them for like forty five fifty bucks, and I was like, this is ridiculous. So I think that's the type of stuff that pushes skateboarders to try to get stuff for for really cheap. Mm. And so, so where are they going to, where are they going to, where are they going to resort to? They're going to resort to torrent sites. And, and so over first year sales were really good. And I started to pay back the cost of the production and, and yeah, so I guess, I guess a long story short was, um, I, I wanted to create a product. And so I, so I started to work with a helmet manufacturer who shall rename nameless. Um, and the idea was for, for to create the first downhill skateboarding helmet in, in the world of downhill skateboarding so that riders had something safe for years. I distributed the Charlie, uh, no limit helmets. Yeah, that's right. I always regretted. Th- yeah. I always uh, regretted that. Yeah. I remember them. I remember we used to sell them until, because there was nothing else you could sell. Well, that was that was how I got the. Um, that was originally how I got collabo riders really stoked on being a collabo rider because I gave those helmets to them for free. <laughs> so I so I'd buy these four hundred dollar helmets and so I would distribute them. 
to other riders, but then the collabo riders would get them for free. Mm. So, so, so like, you know, basically all the collabo riders got really nice Charlie helmets, um, as part of the incentive to be on the team. Mm. And, um, and so in the videos, they always looked really stellar, you know, really futuristic and kind of helped, um, cement them as, as, you know, top athletes in the world of, of downhill skateboarding because mm. they had these futuristic space, space style helmets. Right. But, but it was always a regret of mine because, um, because I guess deep down I knew that they, they weren't that safe. And, and so I, so as sort of, um, I guess, um, to try to make things right, um, I, I took these bell drop helmets and, and modified them, uh, to fit, uh, Charlie, Charlie no limit visors. And that idea came from uh, Mike Benda who originally did it with a, um, with just like sort of like plexiglass, like kind of mounted plexiglass to the, to the, like a visor plexiglass to a Charlie, to a bell drop. Mm. But then I just kind of took his idea to the next level and, and made visors that actually flipped up and down so that riders could have safe helmets and, um, with, with, workable visors on them and um and then i and then i partnered with a a a helmet manufacturer in vancouver who had no no interest in downhill skateboarding but had an interest in selling helmets and um uh and i gave him and um this this helmet manufacturer myself and another downhill skateboarder from the u.s um uh created uh, the design of this helmet that's sold all over the world now, but at the tail end of um, uh, just before the helmet went into production, he pulled the plug and um, pulled the plug on our relationship and, and decided that he no longer wanted me involved after he got all the information he needed to all the information he needed to to create this this helmet. And so I was really devastated by this because it was kind of the helmet that was supposed to save Collabo. It was supposed to be like the the first collabo product yeah. that I was going to sell, right. and, we were, and we were going to market it. We were going to market it through the quality of the videos, and yeah, 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 that's a good know. idea. So, so we were going to do these really nice, really rad videos with the riders wearing these helmets. Yeah, and um, and yeah, so I was I was really uh, really devastated by that by you know the way he handled that and um and so i kind of just washed my hands of downhill skateboarding and and i was like you know i just i don't want to be involved with this anymore and but i but i couldn't i couldn't just i couldn't just um rid myself of of all the years of dedication i put into getting riders on boards and and further to that um the uh the fellowship was released and tons and tons of kids were starting to to get into downhill skateboarding mm. and they want and they wanted to do what the riders were doing on collabo on the collabo video but there was nobody teaching them how to do it safely so kids were getting hurt and people were people were were dying there was kids dying because they were bombing down hills and not learning how to do the the fundamentals before they 
you know, they wanted to do stand-up slides because stand-up slides were all the rage yeah. and everybody wanted skating to do stand-up slides, but they weren't. Yeah. Skating yeah. beyond their limits. But they, but they weren't learning the fundamentals. They weren't learning how to, sl- how to slide. They weren't learning Coleman slides. They weren't learning how to foot break. They weren't even learning how to push properly. So you'd go up, you go to these sessions and these kids would be able to do these huge stand-up slides. But then when they went to stop, they'd like crash and they crash and fall all over the place and stuff. And, and so I thought, you know, I got to, I got to do, I got to make this right. And um, so in the summer of 2010, around the same time we decided, I met Tim Cutting from Skate Slate. I started um, a school called School of Riding. And, and um, I, I lost money on that project. You know, I'm not, not, not so business, business savvy sometimes, but you know, sometimes my heart gets ahead of me and, and I just wanted to make sure that the kids were safe. And and so I, I I started this this school and the whole purpose of the school was to was to teach kids how to spot corners and commute around the city safely and know their products and learn how to learn how to to stop properly and you know fundamentals stuff that you know I'm not going to blame the brands but I think I think any skate shop owner that sends that sells a skateboard, especially a longboard, and doesn't sell a helmet or safety gear, you know, with that board, is, you know, should be ashamed of themselves. Unless they, unless that kid already has a, already has a helmet. Yeah, you know, you're, no, you're giving this kid, you're giving this, you're giving this kid a weapon to go down a hill really fast, but but there's no safety on there, right? There's mm. no safety on that gun, so. We've always sold so, helmets at a discount, like never at full margin, just enough to break even, you know, sometimes at cost yeah. because, y- oh, that's great. you know, you've already made the, if someone's bought a, a longboard, you know, you should have yeah. made a bit of profit out of it. The, the safety gear should be, anyway, that's the way we always looked at it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that because that was sort of the, the whole thing for school of riding was, you know, you can't, I always felt like you can't go out and create a film that gets riders really stoked on getting out and then not teach them how to do it properly, you know? Mm. So. So how long did you do the, so, yeah. the school for? So I did the school for the summer of 2010. And okay. like I said, it was around the same time that uh, Michael Brooke introduced me to Tim Cutting. And that was uh, when we started, when we started Skate Slate was was at the tail end of it was at the tail end of the summer of of um 2010 that might be a story for another day i think so i think I we think should so. think uh, we go. we'll we should uh leave the audience wondering <laughs> so they can tune into the next how, episode well actually it won't be the next did, episode but yeah like how did skate slate come to be and how <laughs> How did Tim Cutting convince me to come back to the downhill skateboarding world? <laughs> Do you think Skate Slate is the one like project that you've been involved in that's had the most impact? Uh, well, what do you think they're all? I would say, I would, the I would say yes and no because. I would say yes and no because I was I was really involved in the in the first 
three years of the project. Mm. But the but the the brands morphed, you know, so much um, in the past, you know, past four years, and and I've had, you know, I launched Skate Slate Japan, but you know, I did, I wasn't intimately involved in Skate Slate on on many levels, so mm. um, you know, I think I think maybe in the early years, yes, but I think the I think, you know, the getting more riders on board has always been a big passion of mine. So, so, you know, I guess we'll have to save that for the next one. <laughs> it's been awesome chatting to you. I, uh, I always love talking to you. Every time we, uh, we talk, we always run out of time. It's like that, uh, time runs too quickly when we, when we get together. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, I appreciate that. It's always, it's always fun talking to you as well, James. Okay, so we'll leave it there. Um, any shout before we go because uh, we might not do the skate slate one for a little while. Like it's not not going to be. Oh, it might be part two straight after. I don't know, but we might do it. You know, sometime in the future. But are there any um, shout outs? Where can people find you? You're on Instagram. Well, yeah. I mean, um, I'm uh, I'm st- I'm going to be launching a. A new website. Um, uh, I mean, it was supposed to be done a month ago, but that's how I roll sometimes. Yeah, I, you know, um, my Instagram, which is uh, just Dan Pape, is more of a personal Instagram. It's not really for marketing or branding purposes. Okay. But I, but I will be. Um, I mean, you can kind of follow what I'm doing here in Japan a little bit on that Instagram, but I will be launching something new um this year and i'm pretty excited about it because uh again i'm always always really excited about doing stuff that i feel has never been done before Mm. um and and i'm excited to tell tell everybody more about that i guess maybe we'll save that for the next podcast okay yeah that'd be good when it's uh closer to launch time yeah yeah, but your new website um, will be dan Pape.org? Uh yeah, I think it's gonna be danpape.org and there's a if if you want to be notified when it goes live, then just pop over to danpape.org and uh enter your email there and and you'll be the first to know when it goes live. And we're gonna do some uh collabo teas together. Are we still gonna do that? It'd be nice. Yeah, I'd love I've to got see that the uh no. I've got that that um software we're just on the hopkin website we're just tweaking a few things so we can sell internationally so we're actually changing the website so people can see the us dollar the canadian dollar so they can uh, see it in their own currency it will just help with no one from canada or america wants to come to an australian website and go wait a second it's $25 $25 Australian, what's that in US dollars? Is that more money, less money? Right. You know? So if they That's can see cool. it in their own currency. Um, so where Hopkin is partnering with a international printing company that's going to uh, help print various brands, T-shirts, clothing, different sort of products, and market oh, nice. them globally. So if you're in America and you want to buy a Calabo T-shirt, you know, get a bit of nostalgia back or, you know, to uh, 
show you support for Dan and the OG downhill, then you know you can bu you can buy a T-shirt online and it will be printed in America and shipped to you. So it won't be like a an Australian product in Australian dollars printed here and it's going to cost you eighty dollars oh, or something. Great. It'll be like a thing. So I mean, I just wanted to put that out there because it's going to force me to do I mean, something. It'd be <laughs> I mean, it, it would be nice to do. It would definitely be nice to do to bring back the collabo shirts. Yeah, I loved do, uh, all that collabo do, stuff. Yeah, maybe maybe so. like a limited. Yeah, maybe like a limited edition. Maybe like um for the ten year anniversary, like a limited edition Fellowship of the Bearing T shirt or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if uh, nice. yeah, if you if you want to be uh, if you want to help um, you know, get that Fellowship of the Bearing ten year anniversary thing, hit up Dan, or you can hit up me. And uh, we'll yeah, see, we'll see what great. happens in the next 12 months. You never know. Something might happen. Yeah, the footage is all there. Yeah. Never seen. Yeah. Okay, Dan. Is, there, right, is Dan. there any other shout-outs? Any... I guess thanks to Les Robertson for keeping Skate Slate alive. Yeah. He's on my... Uh, he doesn't know it yet. I'm sure he knows it, but he's on my hit list. He's going to be on the podcast I mean, very through... shortly. We've been through a crazy... This past few years has been uh, the industry's been through a huge huge struggle and so anybody that's still in the game you know big props to you guys yeah the um it's amazing what les has done and i mean he's been involved in a few other businesses and so forth and skate shops so he's really on the um the front line there <laughs> like yeah just you know daily battle Truth. Every every time I speak to him, I always like think, oh man, like how do you just do that that content all the time? It really is impressive. As someone that I've run a blog for a long time, and you know, many times during its life, you know, that blog's been going since two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, or something. You know, I had goals of doing content every day, and it is just, it is, it's hard. But doing quality yeah. content, you know, not just posting up, you know, some sort of PR. Yeah. Oh, shout out to shout out to John Huey too. <laughs> John John Huey and Les Robertson, those guys. Okay, I'm going to finish the podcast there. Dan and I, we can literally talk all day, and we have to end the podcast somewhere. Two hours. Thank you. If you've reached the end of the podcast, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I had. Thanks, Dan, for the great conversation. We'll do part two soon. But that's not going to be the next podcast. I think the next one, I did do an interview with Bassie at Newton's, and I have um, time lined up with Jevons and a few other skaters that did the Australian-Asia circuit. IDF circuit this year so I think we'll do a couple of podcasts like that next if you like this podcast if you want to encourage me to do more subscribe, share it out like it uh, tell your friends and I'll see you on the next podcast hop out